Welcome to Geared for Growth for another bonus podcast episode today. The reason being is that yesterday our business got some national media attention for a data release which looked at the distance between where a property investor lives and where they invest. So for anyone that doesn't know, I'm the Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors and we prepare thousands of tax depreciation schedules for property investors each year and we wanted to ask the question how far do actually people invest from where they live now we're going to share that data today but to help me unpack it I'm joined by Kate Bakos the president of the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association of Australia thank you for joining me Kate thank you for having me it's always a pleasure catching up with you now if this data exists out there, the distance between where people live and where they invest, I certainly have never seen it. And the reason why we wanted to crunch the numbers was to get an idea about how far we are actually happy to move from where we live when we're looking at our investment property. Obviously, casting a broad net means potentially there are richer grounds. There's the old adage as well that we like to invest where we're familiar, where we know the cafes and that sort of thing. And I think whichever way you look at the data, it has some interesting implications for the property investors, whether they're buying too close to where they live or buying too far. First of all, weigh in if you wouldn't mind. Does this data tell us anything interesting? Yeah, it does. When I saw your little, your file and, you know, I'm a data nerd, the same as you, Mike, but um, you called it property versus postal in your, in your little clip. And it is fascinating because it hones in on buyer behavior and buyer attitudes. And it gives us a chance to have a chat about the mistakes that it can create and, and also some of the benefits, but more so we can also chat about how that has changed in history and, and where it could be headed because it, comes up all the time you know sometimes I have it as an objection sometimes I have it as a, a must-have inclusion you know investors do like buying local so this really does uncover that it busts a few myths as well and what I know that you've seen the data but what was your your anecdotal idea about the average investor was it your opinion that the average person did want to buy within distance of being able to drive past and, you know, stalk the tenants, make sure they're not wrecking the <laughs> joint or, or drive yeah. past and go, look, there's my investment. You know, it makes me so proud. Yeah. Is it, is it pride or is it enjoying being on night patrol? A uh, combination of both. And, you know, investors love to sometimes talk about speculation and talk about risk, but they, they very much don't like to be exposed to risk and this is one of the ways that a lot of people sometimes delude themselves into thinking that they're mitigating risk they feel that they're buying something familiar and it often often signals that they're either not trusting the right people so then they're not wanting to trust someone else's opinion they're wanting to do it themselves which is understandable or they think that their area is an outperformance area it might be because they've experienced great capital growth themselves. But there are a lot of questions you have to ask yourself as an investor to unpack whether your PPOR experience is likely going to be reflected in your IP experience in the same location. Because if you're talking different street, different dwelling, different uh, motivation for buying it, it might not perform the same. And, and one thing that I think when you ask people about investing in their own suburb or LGA, you ask the question, they say, well, it's because I know the area, but what, what they tend to know is 
where the schools are, where the good coffee is, not necessarily what the major employers are, what the historic growth rate, what development controls are happening and all that sort of stuff. Is that, is that fair to say? It is fair to say. And I often say to people, even if you've analysed all of that and you know how your suburb benchmarks against other suburbs, we're still talking about um, general numbers. You know, we're either dealing with averages or with medians. So it doesn't necessarily draw a, a dot between, or draw a, um, you know, a dotted line between the, the owner-occupier property and the investment property. What they really have to ask themselves if they've decided that their suburb is still a winning suburb and if they're okay with a lack of diversification is asking themselves about the target tenant. Now, if they are representative of the target tenant, then great, go and get another property that's similar to yours because you love your property, you'll love the other property, but it doesn't always work like that. And a lot of investors, by the time they get to, you know, multi-property investment age, they might already have a family. So their needs as a, an occupant in that suburb could be different to their target tenant. Mm. And, and I'm sure that you can make money in whatever suburb if you're able to buy below the market, you know, whatever, whatever buyers agents say these days to win <laughs> business. I'm going to give you a bit of stick. Uh, it's not really yourself, but, you know. Um, I've seen but, some claims out there. It's okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, what are the chances that you happen to live in one of the most potential hotspot suburbs in all of Australia. It seems a little bit remote to me. It seems like a bit of a, a backward view to purchasing your own property, thinking that that's the best you can do in the whole of Australia. Is that, is that yeah. a bit fair or unfair? Uh, look, it is unlikely that we all live in the highest capital growth location in Australia. And what we have to understand is what else we're looking for. It's not always just about capital growth. I deal with plenty of investors that need a certain rental return for that to be a viable investment purchase. So when we all know when you go for a higher rental return, you diminish your capital growth return and it's a sliding scale. If someone can do a 10 out of 10 capital growth property and sustain the, the cash flow shortfalls with a minuscule rent, even then they've got to ask themselves what sort of data are they looking at to suggest that their chosen suburb is going to be a long-term performer because we see a lot of suburbs that have fabulous growth over a short space of time or they've gentrified so they've had a really good recent run and then they're back to their normal traditional healthy run there's a lot of science to understanding capital growth and you have to understand what time frame you're talking if you go back through the history books and you look at the the most recent 40 years of capital growth that that's a pretty reliable figure and, and it's long term. But if you're going back through the census data and looking at which suburbs have peaked since last, last census collection, you'll get a very different array of postcodes. Mm, yeah, that's really, that's really good insight. Now, before we keep people waiting any longer, I'm going to tell them what the average distance is between people's house and their investment property. So without further ado, it's 370 kilometres. Now, was that a surprise to you, that number? It was. In fact, it was enough of a surprise for me to ask you a burning question that just about tipped your data upside down. Um, <laughs> I, 
I thought it would be less. I really did because I deal with a lot of investors and I see the resistance to this borderless investing. You get a lot that will embrace it, but typically not your first time investors. And you and I both know when you look at the ATO data and you work out how many people stop at one property, how many stop at two, how many stop at three, it, it starts to fall away very quickly. So the majority of investors own one property, the vast majority of investors. Mm. And if we know that first-time investors are reluctant to go borderless, then I would naturally assume that that figure would have been a lot smaller than 370 kilometres. So I did ask you, what was the burning question that (laughs) that got you back in the spreadsheet, Mike Mortlock? The the burning question is is all based on your science training in a past life. And that was, what's blowing out the numbers? You were were very keen on interrogating my data. And um, and I'm, I'm glad you did because I actually didn't realise that there was a couple of overseas investors in the mix. Now, it wasn't so significant to blow everything to smithereens, but it was enough to give me at least one of these grey hairs has got your name <laughs> written on it. But it, it changed the average distance from 370 to 291. So, yeah. yes, it's, it's cut it down a little bit because uh, Bristol is a long way from Lane Cove, as it, as it turned out. About 17,000. 17, <laughs> yep. um, but it was only six of our, of our thousand, uh, six, six overseas investors of this thousand mm. sample. So 291, to me, I, I know it's a, it's a bit less than 370, but it's still, it's still more than what I thought it yeah. would be. It's a sizable number. So when we've taken the overseas outliers and we're just focusing on national investment, it's still a big number and it's still larger than what I would have thought. And, mm. you know, that, that was naturally a surprise because I'm privy to, to buyer behaviour. But what you were able to then further break down the data and stop looking at, at just the average distance and also focus on concentric um, radius circles from um, the, the point of um, owner-occupier and, and investment selection. So you were then able to drill down and I'm looking forward to unpacking that because it started to tell a story that was more in line with my understanding of buyer behaviour. Yeah, there's, there's obvious instances where something can blow it out. If the person's investing in Perth and they live in Cairns, that's a big, I don't even know what that distance is, but it's a lot, right? So I think once we get down into the minutiae, it starts to go a little bit more like what we would anecdotally think uh, to be the case. But It's certainly the case that people are, um, on average, at least, casting a fairly uh, broad net. What are the advantages in looking across, you know, let's say, um, potentially into another state, but at least quite a drive from where they actually live? Yeah. Well, you're obviously um, creating a little bit of diversification in your portfolio, for starters. If you can get your head around being objective and and stop looking in your own backyard, you can then start to rely on some information to suggest other areas that could be even more suitable for your brief. So if you've got a a theme there that you're, you're looking for capital growth and you know exactly what sort of target tenant you're after and price point you're willing to spend, Uh, return that you're likely to get and the outgoings that you want to manage, you can start honing in on areas and the advantage is that you're just driven by numbers. You're not being driven by emotion. The more emotion you can strip out of an investment property selection process, 
the better your result will be. And I'll say that time and time again, as soon as emotion creeps in, it starts to blur the lines. So the, the willingness to look outside doesn't mean that you necessarily have to target Perth or Cairns or, or the you know most far-reaching end of the continent. It just means that you're willing to be open to other areas. And I think that's, that's an amazing start for someone who genuinely wants to be pragmatic about this. How far do you think is far enough to remove emotion? Does emotion come from the ability to drive there? Um, if it's 290 or 370 k's away, yeah. do, you, do you anticipate that the purchaser has gone to inspect the property themselves? Like 370, I mean, uh, you know, it depends on the person, but you know. I hope so. Yeah. You, do, you can do a lot of research on the ground before you buy a plane ticket and a hire car, um, you know, you take on a high car and drive out there and you'd like to think that you're, you're pretty vigilant with um, monitoring what your available options are and then shortlisting them. I wouldn't fly interstate and then drive a couple of hours to check out one property. I would have a selection of properties and I'd drive there better yet. I wouldn't bother doing it myself. I'd have someone I trust, but that's, that's another conversation point. You know, you can get buyers agents that are very experienced in a given area and they live there and they know all of the agents and they understand the quirks and the differences between pockets in the neighborhoods. But I think being able to go interstate, you asked me about the advantages. Diversification is an obvious one and not just diversification of, of your state for the purposes of, you know, land tax and, and other legislative considerations. You've also got different um, dwelling types, different tenants. You've, you've got a lot of coverage um, if you're in different markets from, um, from market volatility. So, you know, if one area is vulnerable for you and, and you have a downturn or something impacts it, you've got other holdings that can, can smooth, you know, that upset for you. And that, that is, you know, the essence of investment in every asset class to be able to mitigate risk and or to spread your risk. Mm. And it's very hard to do that when you've got two properties within five or 10 Ks of, of one another. So yeah. that's, that's the obvious advantage. But what, what's the real risk if you're buying a property that's 370 Ks away or, or let's say too far to for you to feasibly even go and inspect yourself yeah. and you might use a buyer's agent in a, in a, in a remote regional area to advocate for you? Well, the, the risk is about the advice you're getting. And it, it's, I understand how hard it is for people to trust someone they've, they've not known before. And our job is to, to demonstrate that we're trustworthy and to build trust. But that doesn't just happen overnight. And I'm certain that I've had clients that have crossed their fingers and hoped that I'm trustworthy. And, you know, they've put their faith in me and they're very nervous and justifiably I'd feel the same. But the risk if you're doing it yourself or if you have someone helping you who doesn't know what they're doing is that you could buy a dud. And once you've bought a dud, unravelling that's expensive and stressful and the lost opportunity if you decide to ride it out is, is ever present as well. Um, the other risks for you, you've got to consider the cost of maintaining this. If it's super remote, or if it's in an area where things are more expensive because of its remoteness, you've, you've got to weigh that up. Mm. And you have to also, when you're going into regional areas, especially if they're smaller regional areas or more remote, you really need to make sure you've got the right team around you, particularly property managers, because keeping a great property manager in a little town, it's a big ask. If they're part of the business, if they're in the family, if they own the business, that's a really good sign that you know, longevity is probably a bit more guaranteed. And some of our best property managers, me personally, are our remote regional ones, but we've really had to hunt and find them 
because if you don't have someone good, you, you're leaving a lot to chance. And that can be a hard thing for a, an individual investor to yeah. do is to, just to get those relationships because I guess you're doing it in, in bulk on, on people's behalf. Mm. Do you think that, let, let's go back to the, to the figure of 370 Ks or 291 if we eliminate the, um, the, the overseas in, investors. 10 years ago, do you anticipate that the number would have been this high? No, no, I don't. I think technology has enabled a lot of people to, to take the plunge and to be more comfortable with purchasing from a distance or even sight unseen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, is that, I mean, I definitely want to ask you about whether you anticipate that to be something that happens a little bit more in the future, but let's, let's dive into some of the minutiae that we promised before that I think tells a little bit more of the story, the, the story and starting off slow. Cause I don't think this one necessarily does it, but the numbers showed that 6.9% of investors were buying within their home suburb. Do you, is that number a surprise to you? And uh, considering yeah. that that own suburb is normally a very small area. I actually thought when I initially saw the headlines or the 6.9% that it would be higher. And then I said to you, well, you know, maybe like neighboring suburb or LGA, which is local government area. And that was when you said, hang on a second, I've got some more data for you. And then it started to click into place. But based on my dealings with first time investors, buying in the same suburb or the one next door or very, very close by that I would have expected it to be greater than 6.9. So if you're comfortable to roll into the next concentric circle, mm. that might start to tell more of a story. Let's do that. I was just, it was a little bit of a, oh, okay, it's still not matching yeah. my anecdotal evidence or my prejudice against investors and, and wanting to invest too close to home. But the next figure, of all the clients that we studied, 59.6% purchased an asset within 50Ks of their house. While yeah. 35.6% were buying within 10 kilometres of their principal place of residence. So more than a third, you would say, are within their LGA. Yeah. Now, that was a big figure. And that was more in line with my understanding of investor behaviour. It's a big number, though, a third. Yeah. Your, your LGA, you know, you're familiar with that. You'd be bumping into your tenants at the shopping centre. You'd be seeing them in the main street. Exactly. And to dive, I'll, I'll even go um, a tiny little bit smaller. If, if we remove the overseas investors, 10.1% of people invest within two kilometres of where they live. So that's where we start to maybe get a bit of an insight into how keen we are to invest close to where we are, would you say? That's an incredible piece of data. It means that one in 10 people can walk to their investment property. Mm. that's way too close to home for me (laughs) should should you and it means the tenants can maybe walk to your house yeah well (laughs) it it can be problematic if tenants know that you're local and know where you live and there are plenty of tenants that know where the landlord lives but having that ability to you know have a bit of space between you and hopefully you're not disclosing your personal address details to your tenant you're letting your property manager do their job but for a lot of people who are self-managing I mean I've, I've had plenty of People suggest that having it close to home enables them to more easily self-manage. And all I think about is rocking in the corner and worrying about them. It's a terrible idea. But the point is one in 10 investors can walk to their investment property. Mm. So if we recap those stats, and again, if I I remove the overseas investors, we're saying 60.2% live within 50Ks, 36.2% within 10 
there's 23.3 within five and 10.9 within two. Is that the evidence that says that investors are still wanting to invest very close to where they live? Is that enough to make that conclusion, do you think? Yeah, without a doubt. Even the big ticket one, which is close to 60% being within 50Ks, that suggests for most capital cities, same city. Yeah. And you and I both know. If I've got an investment property in Melbourne, yep, I'll, I'll go and see it. I'll be more responsive to do a few hands-on things when I don't need to bring in a tradie. Um, I might want to be more involved in the inspection process or, you know, the, the final inspection or the uh, just from a, the point of view of being more engaged with the property manager and being responsive and making decisions with them rather than relying on them to do everything in an outsourced kind of way, mm. that, that will influence uh, your relationship, the nature of your relationship with your property manager as well. Yeah, and, and, and that's some evidence of some positive things of investing within a short drive of, of where you live. Uh, so not, your tenant's not going to charge you $80 to get the light bulb done because you can probably go and do it yourself for $2.50 or what have you. But um, what are the other advantages from, let's say, an asset selection point of view? Because I, I'm imagining that people want to buy in an area that they know or they understand because they believe they understand the, the property market. Do you see that as an advantage? If you're an experienced person in the property market and you're looking for the right things, um, it, it can be an advantage. If you just love where you live, but you don't understand anything about property investing or the property market, it could be fraught with danger. Uh, and the property that you purchase in the suburb that you're familiar with doesn't necessarily um, promise to be a successful purchase. If you're missing all of the other you know, important underlying principles of good asset selection, you could be thinking, I love postcode 3013, so I'll just at, make sure I buy in this postcode um, at any price. Now, if I've got a, a limited budget and I'm determined to get into this suburb, I'll have to compromise. I'll compromise on the size of the asset or the location or the condition of the asset. Now, that compromise could be a deal breaker for a great capital growth trajectory or for a happy tenant. So you've got to be very careful about that. If, if familiarity is the only driver and you're not willing to accept the flaws to your strategy, you could be buying something that will cause you a lot of distress. And the familiarity that we're talking about is, okay, we know where the schools are. We know you would never buy in that street because, you know, there's a bikey family or what have you. Um, but is the familiarity around the drivers of that property market, do you think? Because this is an investment, right? It's a business decision. It's not a, I love the postcode and that house looks cute. I mean, people do invest like that, but, but one ought not to right? Mm -hmm. yes. what, do, do you think people know enough about the important things in those areas? If they are the same age group and you know, demographic profile to the suitable target tenant, it can work really well. Mm -hmm. So for example, I've got a daughter who's nearly 14 and a husband. And so if I want to pick a house like mine near mine, I've got probably a, a task to find a tenant that's a bit like us so that yep. they're seeing the same things that I'm seeing in, in the suburb that I so love. But if I'm picking off a, um, a, a flat, a two-bedroom flat or, you know, whatever, something that's very different to what I live in and it's not a property that will comfortably house a young family, then I've got to start thinking like the target tenant. 
you know, what does a single or a couple 20 something look for when they want to live in Yarraville? What do they need to be close to? What floor plan will they be sensitive to? What attributes will help them stay and pay more rent or, you know, want a long tenure? They're, they're the questions that should be asked. And if someone isn't able to pragmatically step into the target tenant's shoes and think forward about what does the tenant want? What will make them want to stay? And what's the, the owner-occupier group that will continue to drive values of a dwelling like this so that I can enjoy watching comparable sales and um, indicators of my price, my, my value, um, into the future, demonstrating capital growth? If you don't understand those things, just merely liking a suburb because you're familiar with it is, is not a good basis for making an investment decision in my view. That's a really interesting point because I would have to say, just thinking about myself, I would have no idea about what people that live in my suburb that want a, a duplex or, you know, are younger than me. I mean, I don't want to sort of say, I don't understand the kids these days. I'm not old enough yet, but certainly I'm not, I don't think I'm a millennial. Um, you know, I've only got to go and stay at a hotel and look at the, the last searches on YouTube and I, I don't understand what <laughs> people are watching and none of these names make any sense. And you click on one and you're like, oh, this is terrible. Like I want to go back to my safe place of Antiques Roadshow, you know. Um, so that's that's a really important point. Do 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 you think that? I want to ask the question: What are people missing out on potentially if they are fixated with the idea that they have to buy in a suburb that they know and understand? They're missing out on what could be. They really are. You know what else is out there? If all you're looking at is one suburb, you're missing out on all of the thousands of other suburbs. And if you're not getting your strategy before your preferred suburb, you're back to front. You're putting the cart before the horse. What you should be saying is, what am I trying to achieve? What amount of money am I working with from a, um, a, an expenditure point of view, so a budget point of view and a cash flow point of view? What else am I likely to want to do into the future? How many properties do I think I'll amass? What's my end goal? What's my debt retirement strategy? All of that will determine price point and all of the metrics that go with an asset. And if you're just looking in your backyard, it's a super limited pool. Yeah, but Kate, what if I really like Surrey Hills or Hawthorne or Brighton or South Bank? You know, like. Yep. I, I, so you I, save that for yourself. That's where your owner occupier property will be. Now, if you can't afford to be there, and you're wanting to invest, then you've, you've got a few other things to consider. Do I um, compromise on my own occupier purchase and, and be in a smaller property, but in the location I want to be in? Or am I a rent vester? Am I going to find the property that I absolutely love and pay the going rent and then channel my other savings into my investment portfolio? You have options, but if you're loving a, an area, then, then love it for yourself. Don't expect that your tenants will always love it and think about diversification. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, the, the people that buy in the same street and, you yeah. know, within two Ks, one in 11, oh, that's, that's a crazy amount. I often sort of think of saying to these people, well, what are the chances that you happen to live in the best suburb for property investing in Australia at that point in time? I mean, maybe that's a little bit too crazy because I think people get really drunk on this hot spotting idea. Like, mm. you know, this suburb is the new hotspot. If it's, you know, Hobart or Port Pirie or, or whatever, yeah. is it really important to buy something that's going to go up in value really quickly? Like that's, that's the timing the market rather than time in the market. Should investors be chasing that new up and coming 
sort of thing or is that difficult to time and it's maybe better to look at something that's a perennial performer what do you think okay we're talking about speculation here and you can take an educated guess a speculative guess with a bit of science behind it and maybe get it right and you know i've tried that in the past and as an investor looking after my own profile i've i've done it when i've been in a position to take that risk because if you pick something that you know could fly but it could flop you've got to live and die by that i don't mm. play that game with my clients at all when you're going into a gentrifying area that's different and a gentrifying area can have you know a sudden uplift and then return to its normal traditional pace of capital growth and and they're not so impossible to pick but gentrifying areas come with their own set of challenges because yes you can you can brace for this fantastic uplift based on infrastructure changes or ripple effect or changing demographic or whatever it might be but you also have to expect that gentrifying means it's going from a little bit of you know rough diamond to polished diamond and you can call it whatever you like but Rough diamond means you've got higher crime rates and you've got rougher tenant pool and, you know, people will tell me to wash my mouth out for saying those things. But gentrifying means that it wasn't super polished and blue chip when you bought into it and you're dealing with all of the negatives associated with that or all of the headaches. And it means that, you know, you might get more... Um, more movement with your tenants, you know, a higher um, rate of change of tenant. You might have tenants that um, have payment issues, difficulties paying their rent. You might have some um, malicious damage and it doesn't always happen. And of course, there are things that you can do to mitigate against that. But you're taking on a suburb that is poised for growth because it's changing, its face is changing, but it means it's coming from a lower place. That's all. Mm. That's an interesting one. And, and I'd recommend checking out your podcast too, because you've got sort of like the the king of gentrification studies. He's uh, quite the, amazing. The Pete. property professor in there yeah. as well. So I'm sure you've chewed the fat on that one in particular. Um, so let's, let's think of that, that stat of, of 60% of people that are investing within 50 Ks um, using that as a jumping off point. I think that's sort of enough to, as you say, say that the majority of people are more comfortable investing in an area that they least, uh, at least know. Uh, yeah. Would you expect over the next few years this distance to increase or decrease? Look, I expect it to increase. And the reason why I say that, I mentioned tech before and I want to delve into that. Um, there have been some advancements, you know, within the industry that are making that, that jump to buy you know, much further away and sight unseen, um, more palatable for people. And the first one is technology such as, you know, good photography and videography and even just sending your mate down the road and getting them to FaceTime you. That was unthinkable 10, 20 years ago. And now it, it's not like it's going to cost you thousands of dollars. It's a FaceTime phone call. If you've got Wi-Fi, it's free. Um, that, that gives you more visibility. It might not be production quality, but it certainly is decision quality. Then you've also got, you know, good laser measures and, and fantastic floor plans can get done very, very quickly. So you can outsource all this stuff, this video and photo and um, infrared technology, and, and it can answer a lot of questions that previously, you know, you'd, you'd get on the flight, hire the car, take the tape measure, take your camera. It's a very different thing. Um, we also have... Um, a lot more buyers agents so BA was a, a space that was quite rare and limited 20 years ago and in some of the regions you, you weren't able to just get a BA onto the case but these days 
most of our cities and our regions have the presence of at least one buyer's agent. And so if you can interview them well and work through that, that um, reliance on them and feel that you can trust them and talk to them and, and they've got you know, good credentials and great testimonials, then you've already got that added level of comfort that you can outsource it. Uh, and if you don't want to outsource it and you, uh, you're quite happy to rely on, you know, FaceTime videos and, and the agent's videos, and I, I say that you should always be careful with agent pictures and videos, uh, their job is to make the house look great. Mm -hmm. So you need someone who's equally happy to get in there and try and find the things that aren't so great. Might be a really good, reliable building inspector who can point out the physical flaws, but you also need someone who can give you a good snapshot of the street, the surrounds, um, and all of the things that, that might um, make you think twice about the purchase. And then the, the last things that, um, you know, tech include uh, online tech that's available for all of us, such as Google Street View and Google Images. And that, that's absolutely changed the face of our ability to shortlist property. I can, without a doubt, say it's one of the most crucial tools that I use every single day with all of my searching. I'll never pop a property on my itinerary and book myself in until I've done a Google Street View because I don't want to get there and realize I've wasted my time. And, and I would expect that all that to get much more sophisticated too. I mean, we almost went a whole interview without talking about COVID-19. I've wrecked it now. Yeah. But, but that has, <laughs> that, that has certainly pushed the, the video streaming uh, much more to the fore. And yeah. just this morning I was looking at one of our estimators on there um, on their computer talking to one of our inspectors about a place that we looked at in Byron Bay that was a, a bit of a, a backpacker's place. And they were on Google Street View sort of showing them around like they were there. And we were hitting buttons and we were going up the stairs. I mean, that technology, I can't... It's amazing, I, That's the it? first time I've actually seen a Google thing go up the stairs. But, yeah, that, that's, that, that's going to be interesting to see. We will definitely revisit this data and, and see what those numbers are, are telling us. Yeah. I'm interested in the we always talk about the coal face um you're at the coal face of the investors i normally only talk to them when their accountant says get a tax depreciation schedule and they say <laughs> what is that no investors are far more educated than that these days but um are you finding that people are coming to you saying kate i want to buy an investment property i am thinking of suburb x that's a thousand kilometers away or 500 kilometers away or are they coming to you saying I want to buy an investment property and there's one for sale just around the corner that I think might be nice. Oh, if I had a dollar for everyone that said the latter, I'd be very, very rich. Um, people don't often, if, if they're being pragmatic and they're coming to me because they want my expertise, they, they come along with numbers. And if they don't have numbers, I prep them to ask their, their broker or their accountant or planner or whoever's helping them with the numbers. I ask them for parameters. And mm -hmm. so I'm asking for, you know, what's your desired sort of spend? What are you looking at doing after that? Because I don't want to be the one that burns their borrowing capacity and precludes them from doing anything else. And we talk about strategy and it can take a long time. But that's a pragmatic investor who says, this is what I'm trying to achieve. What, what should we buy and where? That's great. I love it when they do that. The other nine out of 10, so I've got this property around the corner. I was chatting to this agent and I have to unravel that very, very occasionally, like really occasionally, is it a good idea? Usually it's not. Yeah. So you'd be surprised how many people have spotted something nearby uh, or, you know, they've, they've chatted to Uncle Bob at a 
barbecue or their millennial mate who reckons Geelong's the next thing because they know someone who did really well. And you've got to have more behind your decision to target an area than the you know a, a one success story um, kind of um, pitch that you've heard at a barbecue. You need you need to have a really good understanding of what it is you're trying to achieve, and then you can marry up the locations and dwelling types of with the metrics that you need. But whenever I have someone who has um, a real penchant for buying close to home, in more cases than not, they have, they want to keep the option for personal use one day open. So they're hedging their bets. They're wanting to buy an investment property, but it needs to work for them when they get old or for their kids when they grow up or for their child who's returning home maybe next year from London or from their aging parents or their mate who's in distress or sister who's lost the plot. There are so many um, situations where people want me to get this, maybe it will work for my loved one property, Mm. but they want it also to outperform from a capital growth point of view. And it's very, very hard. And like I said before, as soon as you introduce personal use, you muddy the waters. Mm. I think that's that's fine. If if you want to have something with a view to moving into it and that's your strategy and that's okay, but you can't also say this has also got to be the best investment property I can get because yep. straight away you're limiting the view, right? Yeah. But I know that um, you've written a blog recently about the uh, sea tree changes. So I think, again, I'm ruining this um, this interview with COVID talk, but People are are thinking, you know what, like my office is going to let me work a little bit more remotely. I don't necessarily want to be in the city anymore. You know, DeLonghi make a great latte machine. That's just me picking on you Victorians at the moment. (laughs) Uh, I can make my own. Um, If only that was the case, I still see like a line of 40 people outside their favourite local. It's tragic. We can't (laughs) let go of our obsession with coffee. I know. Um, so do, do you think, are you seeing people that are more interested that are, that are I guess it's, there's two different camps. There's the, the owner ox and then the investors, but are you seeing at the coalface people looking further afield? Um, a proliferation is the right word. We have right. been smashed with people wanting to go into a region or uh, much further from where they live now. And there's a real pushback against the, you know, proximity to CBD and walkability to work phenomenon because right now walkability to work means nothing while we're at home with masks on. Mm. But the question is how long will that feeling last and how long will the conditions be like they are? None of us really know. So I'm not about to stand here and say, oh, look, it'll pass and it's just a fad. I, I can't definitively say that. Corona's changed us. It's shaped us and changed us. And it's taught us that we can work remotely and that we can adopt tech and that it does work. There have certainly been some um, real challenges out of it as well. And tech doesn't substitute reality. And talk to any parent who's stuck at home homeschooling right now. They'll tell you that they want to be back at work. <laughs> but um, I think that we do need to anticipate that we, we will see a trend that that captures a few people moving to the regions. Now, we, we were already underway with that before corona hit. And Sydney is a really good case in point. Wollongong, Newcastle, Central Coast, those regions all saw an explosion in, um, in growth, in sales volumes, in capital growth, when Sydney started to, to push people out of its capital city or its metro area due to, to crazy prices. Yeah. And... 
people have been adopting the work from home practice for a long time, not just since COVID. We've had a nice blend of, you know, three days a week or two days a week working from home and um, that ability to to improvise a little bit and to be present in the office for whichever days it is. I certainly see people transitioning into retirement who are maybe doing four days a week and their final day in the office is on Thursday and then they drive back down the coast, join their partner and then come to work fresh faced on Monday morning and they're back in their little flat. So mm. it's been something that's, that we've started to see in Australia already for, for quite a while. But I think for Melbourne, for my hometown, I look at the opportunity for our regions like Geelong and Ballarat and Castlemaine and even to a degree Bendigo, which is a bit of a, a, a longer travel, but it's still a beautiful town and very commutable if you've got a good work from home, work in the office kind of regime. I think if we start to follow Sydney's um, footsteps, we, we will find ourselves adopting those regions and, and they'll continue to experience growth as well. I'm, I'm very confident of that. But yeah, it's not just COVID that's, that's changes, but the point is, for those that have been really rattled by COVID and have pushed back against, you know, sharing a, a small space and having the kids in the background and the laptop and the kitchen bench, this will pass or it will change. It will ease. We'll get on top of this. We'll either get a vaccine or we'll, we'll start to handle it better. We won't be in COVID territory forever. You know, mm. whether it takes us six months, one year, two years, however long that is, it won't always be like this. And people will always understand the value of living close to a CBD as well. We won't see a, a total deluge of, you know, people rushing away from the city. Yeah, it's easy to think the situation we're in is going to last forever, but uh, eventually <laughs> let's hope it will sort be a feels like memory. It, do, it does feel yeah. that way. What, but, 2020? But, it's been horrible. <laughs> yeah, re control, out, delete or restart yeah. or something. Yeah. But, yeah, so I think the longer there is a lockdown, certainly like with Victoria, um, we could expect people to be looking a little bit more afield, but eventually it will hopefully be a distant memory and, and you're still yeah. thinking that the, the CBDs will, will be important. Um, you've, you've seen the data. We've, we've, we've unpacked it uh, fairly well with our average distances and getting down into the nuts and bolts. Is there anything that you want to say about that to wrap up? Yeah, we've talked about the, the risks and why it can be a bad idea. But I, I also want to highlight that if if your target tenant is similar to you, then having two eggs in a great basket is not a bad thing. But as you're building your portfolio, if you're looking to be a multi-property investor, you've got to start looking further afield. Beautiful. Well, thanks for your insights. Uh, it's always illuminating. And uh, I've really enjoyed unpacking this stuff with you. Thanks for coming Me on board. Too. Thanks for asking me, Mike. Total privilege. Cheers.